This is Authentic. Now a special episode of the F-22 series, Balloon Busting. All right, welcome back, everybody. This is a special episode in the F-22 series about the Chinese balloon shootdown that happened on February 4th, 2023. And we're recording this about a month after the fact. I'm your host, Scott, and along with me is your other host, Scar. How are you doing today, Scar? Hey, Scott. Great. I'm doing fine. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and I'm excited to talk about this because it was a pretty big moment, I think, in current events. And looking back in future days, I think it may be a benchmark in a whole bunch of different things. But saying that, let's go ahead and talk about what we're actually going to talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. So as everybody was tracking from about a month ago, there was a Chinese balloon that entered United States airspace in Alaska, the Aleutian Islands, followed the jet stream up into Alaska, then down into Canada, back into the continental United States, and then crossed from Montana, essentially following the jet stream over to South Carolina. On the 4th of February, that balloon was shot down by the mighty F-22 Raptor, instilling that fear into the hearts of all of our enemies. And so what we want to talk about is how did that aircraft get used in that way? Why did we use the Raptor? What are some of the tactical considerations that go into the leveraging of the Raptor and its capabilities? How did command and control get the Raptor into the spot to take the shot? What are the authorities and where do those come from? And ultimately, the recovery of the wreckage of the balloon and what that could mean. Ultimately, I reached out uh, on behalf of everybody here to try and get people on. And rightfully so, uh, based on the international intrigue surrounding this, uh, we were unable to get participants. And I don't blame them. But what I can do is, is give you from my perspective, as a guy who flew with all the guys who took those shots over the last month, uh, what they were thinking some considerations, and ultimately, as we think about this podcast in the Raptor Show series, we don't necessarily need to be the first with the news, but we'll be the best with the analysis. And so excited to talk about that today, Scott. Yeah, you are spot on there. Not the first to press, but we're going to bring you the best and most accurate info. I think you're, I, I think the DOD, DOD's point is spot on that uh, we're back in great power competition and there's a lot of bad things to, you know, personally identifying these guys. So, you know, we could be proven wrong in six months. I don't know. But I think the listeners about to get the best information they poss- possibly can on how this went down. But before we get to the event itself, let's set the scene for the listener, because it has been a long time. So my entire career, plus the 10 years or more since I retired, that we've really been talking about a daily concern from foreign powers coming into the airspace of the United States. So let's jump into the Wayback Machine, if you will, and start talking about the organizational structure of how we defend American airspace. Absolutely, Scott. So the principal Homeland Defense Organization is one of the major combatant commands. So there are 11 combatant commands in the United States in what we are very familiar with uh, over the last 20 years, certainly is CENTCOM or Central Command. Mm-hmm. Then there is UCOM for Europe, AFRICOM uh, for Africa, uh, Indo-PACOM for the Pacific, 
But then we also have a unified command called Northern Command or Northcom. Based out of Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, they are in charge along with our allies of Canada and Mexico, the home, the defense of North America. In principle, when it comes to Nor- Northcom, uh, they were founded shortly after the September 11th attacks in 2002, actually April 25th of 2002, after the study of how we did or did not share intelligence and how we may need to restructure the organizations that support the whole the defense of America, not just abroad, but also at home, uh, Northcom was created. And so its current leadership is a four-star general, General Van Herc. Uh, he has multiple hats, uh, one of which is Northern Command Commander. He also is in charge of NORAD. But then also, when you think about the various structures surrounding NORTHCOM and how does it get its information, and how does it flow the information out and about? Well, it certainly starts with the president. Ultimately, everything when it comes to the military, you have to go straight up to the top, the commander-in-chief, and we can talk about this at a different time, but we always have civilian control of the military. Through separation of powers and the Constitution, you will always have a civilian control of the military. Commander-in-chief is the president. That person that delegates much authority down to the Secretary of Defense, that is the congressionally approved via the Senate confirmation process, the overall top civilian leader, not the president of the entire DOD. That person then uh, has the combatant commands that report to them. So you have the UCOM commander, Indo-PACOM commander, and also the NORTHCOM commander. Uh, they report directly to the Secretary of Defense. and They tell him or her what is going on in the world from the DOD perspective and provide recommendations for the utilization and mobility of forces. Right. Now, if we think about the Northern Command, you got General Van Herc. The NORTHCOM is separated, at least in the air domain, into two sectors. Western Air Defense Sector, called WADS for short, because of course, in the military, we have to have an acronym, <laughs> and then we have to say the acronym like a word. That's right. And so WADS, Western uh, Air Defense Sector, and then EADS, which is the Eastern Air Defense Sector. Also broken up in there are the Alaskan Command, so 11th Air Force. Uh, also has a role from Alaska, and they are in charge of some pretty awesome capabilities to include some far-reaching radars, uh, etc., that can provide high levels of awareness of the air domain far away so we can prepare. And so as you work your way down, again, in summary, President, SecDef, NORTHCOM Commander, then goes to the various sectors, Western Air Defense Sector and Eastern Air Defense Sector, WADs and EADs, which I believe are separated by the Mississippi River. And then you uh, flow down into the various units which are tasked to WADs and EADs in NORTHCOM for homeland defense. So we always have fighters sitting alert on both coasts, up in Alaska as well, that are ready to, if the alarm sounds, immediately take off. And they're armed and they're ready to take kinetic action in the defense of the homeland as needed. Awesome. Great breakdown of how that all works. Some little points for the listener who, uh, you know, if there's little questions coming up. So one of the other combatant commanders that was big over the past 20 years is SOCOM. And oh, people yeah. might ask, well, where does that fit in? Because we've been talking about regions. Well, there's geographic combatant commanders and there's functional. So SOCOM's functional. We're really not discussing that here. But if that came up and then people sometimes ask, well, wait a minute. What about the Joint Chiefs of Staff? 
because I didn't really hear you know Scar talk about how they fit into all this. And one of the sort of strange things is that since what I think eighty six and Goldwater Nichols, the service chiefs don't actually have operational control of combatant forces in the field. That that's exactly right. So the that is a really good point there, Scott. So from a organized train and equip perspective, the service chiefs, so the chief of naval operations, the commandant of the Marine Corps, the chief of staff of the Air Force, the chief of space operations, and the chief of the Army, they actually don't have a go-to-war role. Right. They are organized, trained, and equipped four stars that provide and present forces and equipment to support the needs of the combatant commands in those combatant commanders. And so you're exactly right. The Air Force, uh, in particular here for the Raptor, organizes, trains, and equips a Raptor squadron to then be shared to a combatant commander in a time of need. And in this case here, that, orga- that Raptor squadron and those individual pilots in those individual airplanes for this mission were turned over command and control-wise to the NORTHCOM commander and they no longer actually own, were owned by the Air Force at that time. Right. Same thing with ships going over to the Persian or Arabian Gulf, depending on how you want to call it. So just wanted to throw that out there for the listener. But I mentioned 86 and the Goldwater Nichols Act, and I'm only going to mention that again to say, you know, all this structure came out of sort of a transition period from the end of World War II, the Air Force was established, and uh, the military store started to change over that time frame. And we had a, a Cold War structure, which really predicated the threats this whole system was, defi- was designed to defend against. So, Scar, let's talk about that for a minute. What, what did we use to defend against and what was the uh, core framework, if you will, that was then modified by Goldwater Nichols and then later by the uh, establishment of NORTHCOM? Absolutely. So early on, the purposes of the homeland defense, if you think about back into the Cold War, what were we worried about? During that time, we were worried initially about bombers. And one of the initial expected avenues of approach for homeland defense was actually over the poles, over the North Pole in particular. And if you actually think about some of the old Cold War bases that have since been bracked or base realignment and closure, aka they don't, don't exist any longer, a lot of them are actually along the northern border along Canada mm-hmm. because we wanted to present forces and present air intercept fighters to be able to get the bear bombers or the other high threat Russian or in this case Soviet era fighters. I think about the fox bat, foxhound, etc. that could go high, fast and over the top and then launch a ballistic missile or some other nuclear tipped warhead uh, in an unfortunate you know, attack on America. Mm-hmm. And so we had a lot of focus in the 50s and beyond until the fall of the Soviet Union on our northern avenue of approach, which is why we had to have homeland defense. And we also have, so feeding into that, a whole host of radars and other signals uh, capabilities, principally in the RF spectrum in America as well as in Canada that are looking uh, to the north. But we also have some other things, not just air domain assets that we need to be worried about. We also have NORAD has a role when it comes to ICBM in sounding the warnings for incoming missiles that we perceive are shot from, uh, in that case, the Soviet era Russia. And so we 
we certainly would be monitoring for tips and cues, or also known as indications and warnings of what would be happening in the Soviet mainland so that we could provide the appropriate warning to people here in the States in case we had to duck and cover. If you can find on YouTube some of those <laughs> old videos of the 50s and 60s yeah. of kids doing duck and cover drills, no kidding, yeah. because we were so worried about the uh, nuclear attack from the Soviet Russia, mm-hmm. a lot of those indications, warnings go and would be funneled through Colorado Springs and then be passed through the appropriate defense, or excuse me, the appropriate domestic authorities and all the way to include if you live in an area like I do where you have, may have tornado sirens or whatnot, those could be repurposed right. as a warning sign for you to get under your desk at school, kid, right. and get ready for you know the incoming attack. Yeah. And so this there is a, actually a multi-multi-decade lineage of uh, high levels of capability in a homeland defense. Yeah. It, that sounds a little crazy now sitting here in, you know, a quarter of the way into the 21st century, you know, duck and cover. But, you know, you talked about the bear bombers and, you know, uh, now the Russians, then the Soviets still operate these, you know, enormous turboprop, four turboprop bombers and reconnaissance aircraft. Uh, they don't really use them in the, in the strategic bombing role anymore. But, you know, we're talking about, you know, the 1950s when before the ICBM was, you know, really in service or was in service in large numbers and all sorts of debates. You can go in in Google or you could read on the missile gap and the perception of the missile gap and so on and so forth. But you're talking about, you know, 400 knot probably bombers coming over the pole, as you said, because that is the shortest route to get from Soviet, then Soviet Russia to Canada and the United States. So, you know, it, back then, I don't know if it's still called this, but the distant or uh, distant early warning line or dew line up there was, you know, consisted of these radars you were talking about, the tracking stations and watching for those. So duck and cover wasn't quite as crazy as it sounds in the day of uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles or even uh, unconventionally. Thanks for listening to this authentic snapshot. If you'd like to hear more, head over to AuthenticMedia.io to hear the rest of this episode and explore our authentic content.